The Daily Rios, for November 9th, 2012. Friday follow-up. Hey everyone, welcome to the end of the week. This is a Friday follow-up, where I backtrack through episodes and comments and my to-do list and try to go over a few topics that were postponed or skipped for one reason or another. And on today's Friday follow-up, we are going to start with the top five. This top five comes from MJ Starchild on Twitter. She is the host of the Nerd Goggles podcast, nerdgogglespodcast.blogspot.com, where she talks about various subjects, music, TV, but uh, mostly it's a book review podcast, and she'll talk about novels and trades. And she'll give a review on anything she has been reading uh, during that week. So check that out. It's a great podcast. I made a comment in response to something I saw about a New York Comic Con interview. And so this is a while back now, right? This is uh, what you know, early October or middle of October. The comment was made because I saw somebody on Twitter say that they had an exclusive interview with a particular creator at New York Comic Con. Let that sink in. An exclusive interview, New York Comic Con, four-day major national convention, hundreds of press outlets, over 100,000 attendees. Come on. Exclusive? Really? So I tweeted that people use that word wrong. And then she, MJ replied, and we were talking back and forth. I brought up another word, and she made the suggestion, why don't you do a top five uh, words that are overly or wrongly used? And I thought, that's, that's excellent. Now, a lot of these words that I'm going to offer up in this top five are wrapped up around comics. So I'm doing the top five co- uh, words that are overly or wrongly used uh, in the comics field. Uh, and... The five words are exclusive, corporate, overrated, rushed, and all ages. And I'll explain that when I get there. Exclusive. Let's continue on with that since that's what I started with. Uh, Like I said, if you're at a major national convention and you interview someone, Unless you've checked every podcast, every site, every trade magazine, every blog, every Tumblr, every media outlet possible, you do not have an exclusive interview. Exclusive. Exclusive. What does it mean? It means limiting or limited to possession control or use by a single individual or group. So unless you are the only person out of over 100,000 people that actually did an interview with this person or that creator or whatever, and you know for a fact that nobody else, which I find very hard to believe, unless you're the you can't use that word. This notion, this, this word exclusive on websites and podcasts, it's, it's really laughable. And then let's talk exclusive previews or exclusive interviews on websites when it comes to promotional material, right? So while you may be the first 
to show something, uh, to have pages that were uh, never seen before on any other website. And you may be the first to talk to a creator or editor or creators or editors. Uh, While you may may be the first to talk to them about a specific topic, you very, very, very rarely are the only ones beyond that. So I get the uh, I get it. Some people want to use that word exclusive for those kind of situations because they are the first. Um, but sometimes those press releases, for example, Comic Book Resources gets a press release and they get a preview for a new Marvel Now book and they write on their uh, exclusive first look at uh, Deadpool number one. You know, whatever. Okay, but probably in about five to six hours, all the other news sites are going to get that same press release with those same images and the same blurbs. Maybe not the the interview that goes with it because that's something that CBR sets up with Marvel. Um, you know, they get the press release, they do the interview in advance, and then they release it all as one. We uh, back in um, in the old CGS forum days. I used to run a subform called Comic News and Press Releases, where I would dump the many, many, many press releases we would get. I would put on images, I'd put the blurbs in, anything that kind of looked interesting and I thought the listeners would uh, connect to. If I got a PR that was embargoed until a certain time, and what that means is I'm not allowed to run it until they say I can run it, it they'll say it in the email. This. This press release is embargoed until tomorrow at 12 o'clock or tonight uh, until tonight uh, at 8 o'clock. So what that means is, uh, so I would, if I got that PR, it means that they were in contact, in contact and in contract with another site to run it first for a few hours. And then the information would then be opened up to any other site once the embargo time has passed. If I got a PR like that, I wouldn't post it at all. I mean, why should I? Why should I play second fiddle? Why should I get scraps, right? That's how I felt. I felt if you're going to embargo it because you're giving it exclusively to someone else uh, for those first couple hours, well, then fine. Then let them have it, and I don't need to post it. It was interesting watching the DC New 52 press releases and, and previews being released because they would spread it out. They would give some to CBR, they would give some to Comic Vine, they would give some to um, USA Today and uh, Entertain- maybe Entertainment Weekly, I forget. They, like, they really reached out, and that was cool, right? That's, that's how you spread goodwill, especially with DC, who does not do a lot of PR. There for a while, you had to go to their website to get it get all their images, get all their blurbs. They're not like Marvel. Marvel dumps PR like crazy. In that instance, you are the, you are the first to run it. And maybe for those first couple hours, you have the exclusive uh, privilege to run them. But then they get dumped on every other website after that. Um, I used to laugh when CBR used to do this a lot too. They used to say, Marvel sent us the press release and preview for the new, I don't know, Captain America number one. And this was a situation where it wasn't an exclusive. Everybody got it at the same time. So it wasn't like Marvel sent it uh, just to CBR. They sent it to everybody. So wording. Wording is so important to me. I, I just think wording is just very interesting in this field. So there's the first exclusive. I remember in the early days of podcasting, there was some talk about trying to keep creators exclusive to certain uh, podcasts, and 
that's ridiculous. You know, that's just why? Why do that? Why cut off uh, other venues for them to be exposed to? You know, other listeners, whole listener bases that don't listen to your show may listen to somebody else. So why be? Why cut them off like that? I do think there's a certain etiquette involved with certain creators. I talked about this before, where the Indie Spinner Act podcast had this great feature where they were trying to contact Dave Sim, and they went ahead, finally got him, and did a full interview with him. And because he did an interview, I'm sure other podcasts felt, oh, you know, now we can get Dave Sim too, because he's done a podcast. It just happened to turn out that one of our listeners on Comic Geek Speak uh, used to talk to Dave Sim a lot at, a, at uh, I think, one of the Ohio conventions. And instead of emailing Indie Spinner Act, this is the easy way, right? Indie, emailing Indie Spinner Act and saying, hey, give me Dave Sim's contact info. No, that's that's the wrong way to do it. Uh, we went through this listener and we set it up that way. And it was a whole different thing. It wasn't an interview. It was a discussion about um, uh, his works, his phone books. You know, we were trying to go in order and try to go through all the phone books with him, kind of like what we did with Terry Moore and Strangers in Paradise. So there's that's an etiquette, right? You don't, just because you get... Uh, a certain creator, you don't just email that podcast or that website and say, hey, give me the contact information. No, that's you don't do that. You have to either work for it yourself. If they offer it up, that's one story. But, you know, try to, you got to do the legwork yourself. So there you go. That's that's the first word. All right, the second word, corporate, as in corporate comics. Corporate meaning uh, of, for, or belonging to a corporation. Uh, have you heard comments such as, I can't believe editors are sticking their noses in and making writers and artists pay attention to their ideas in corporate comics. Corporate. Mainstream. Why should, why should that ever surprise you? Especially in these days. It's one thing to say, even five years ago, maybe the mask of, of the corporate comic and the way they do, the way Marvel and DC do their comics was a little bit more hidden but ever since these reboots, or no, excuse me, ever since they were purchased by Disney, Marvel purchased by Disney, and ever since uh, DC restructured with DC Entertainment, they have really been corporate comics, and with everything that goes with that, the process, the assembly line, holding on to your properties, uh, having ideas about what you want to do in the future, having ideas about your comics because of what you're going to do in movies or cartoons or TV shows, short-term goals, immediate sales. Do I agree with it all the time? No. Do I blame them? No. Will it be the same now that it was maybe in the 80s and 70s and 80s when there was a lot of creativity going on and we just assumed that there wasn't any corporate control, but there was, um, you know, it's going to be different. Um, the entire fabric of the DCU has changed. And, and if you keep basing the current strategies off of what you thought you knew about comics prior to these reboots, you're really just setting yourself up for a fall. Corporate comics. There's a reason why it's called corporate comics. If you want to work in corporate comics, expect corporate shenanigans. <laughs> and I don't even mean that in, in, in the doom and gloom of it all. You know, I just mean you're not going to go in there and be Todd McFarlane on Spider-Man. 
Those days are long gone. You're not going to go in there and be Walt Simonson on Thor. You know, you're not going to go in there and earn your right to do uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez's New Teen Titans. I think that they have a stronger control of their properties and what they want to do with them and how they want them to look and how they want them to feel. You may not agree with it. I, I That's not my point. Nothing really kind of surprises me anymore. You know, those 20 variant covers on Uncanny Avengers number one, those 52 variants on Justice League of America number one coming up. I thought I heard that IDW on Godzilla did like 100 Variants now though they may have been like retailer variants, but still, um, I think when I when I picked this word corporate, it's less about people's use of it and more about their reaction to it when they when they see publishers do certain things and they're like, how can they do that? Well, they can do that because they're a corporate, they're a corporation. I get it. I don't have to like it, but I get it, and I don't really bitch about it because. No, I shouldn't say I don't bitch about it, but I'm not surprised. Let me put it that way. Let's go to overrated, which means uh, to rate or appraise too highly, overestimate. And I use this, I pick this word because of uh, when I see this word in conversation, on forums, or I hear it on podcasts during reviews. And I'll give you an example of when it's used where I find it used the most, and where I find that in this example it is used incorrectly. Overrated, especially when attached to Watchmen, the original series. Because, you know, all those issues that it sold, and all those trades that it sold, and all those college courses that teach Watchmen, and the movie... And all those articles that have been written over the years and all those annotations and constant discussions and podcasts and new ways to talk about the original series, all those people are doing all of that because Watchmen is overrated. Right, you fucking morons. (laughs) Watchmen is not overrated. You may not like it, but it has absolutely earned its rating. If anything, your disliking of the work and your attempt at trying to devalue its, its uh, history, that is overrated. I mean, come on. This isn't Secret Wars 2 people are talking about. This isn't, this isn't Countdown that they're trying to build college courses around. This is motherfucking Watchmen. Overrated? Kiss my ass. All right, rushed. This is uh, used a lot also in discussions, podcasts, reviews, in terms of artwork. And they'll look at something and and say, wow, John Romita Jr. doesn't look like this. This looks rushed. Or, wow, Ethan Van Skyver on Flash Rebirth. This looks rushed. I can't always say it's necessarily used incorrectly most of the time or, or... What am I trying to say? This is a tricky one. I've sort of come to realize over the past couple years, the past few years, like two years or so, that artists dealing with deadlines, it's not that they are rushing. It's almost like you see, you're seeing 
two or three artists. You have the one artist that doesn't have any deadlines, and they create a project, and you look at it and go, wow, this is amazing. You're almost seeing the, the most real uh, version of their art, right? Then you have uh, the artist that has the opposite of that, who truly is dealing with deadlines. Think of Igor Corday on New X-Men, and their artwork, it, it's bad. It's, it truly is rushed because they're trying to squeeze out two issues a month, or they're just trying to catch up in the publishing schedule. And then you compare their work to something else, and you're like, why, did they, why is it so bad? Okay, I get that. But then in the middle lives the artist that does a page a day, that meets their deadline, and works within the constraints of whatever that deadline is, or whatever the schedule is, and their artwork is not rushed. It's also not what they could do if they had no deadline, right? If they just had an unlimited timeline to do their work. Um, of course, you don't get paid when you do something like that. Or I should say, you know, you don't get you don't get enough product done to get paid or whatever. Uh, and that middle artist, um, that middle example, I don't look at it as rushed anymore. Uh, I look at it as that is what their artwork looks like given the schedule that they are given. And my example for this is uh, Terry Dotson. Terry Dotson, when he does work, uh, it's it's great. If you like his artwork, I, I, I particularly I care I I like his artwork. Uh, it gets a little too balloony at times, but um, uh, you know his his wonder short lived Wonder Woman run I really liked. I liked his uh, Marvel Knights Spider Man run, even though I didn't particularly care for the story. He does good artwork. Uh, him and and with his wife, you know, he does great artwork on a regular schedule on a monthly issue when it comes out, or maybe it's late. So then he does uh, he did a European book. Uh, a bed a book, and you look at that, it's uh, on a book, at least what I saw, called uh, Terry Dotson's Muse, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's even, it's more detailed and more, and closer to probably what the true art of Terry Dotson is than anything I've ever seen before, and it's something big that they... Um, you know, they just work on and they get it done. It's not like it has like a deadline and once it's done, it's done. You know, you compare that to his best work in comics and there's an obvious difference. And it's not so much that his work in mainstream comics is rushed. It's just that's what he, that's his art style for that particular schedule. And then you have to fluctuate on that scale depending on your schedule. So rushed... Maybe it's not so much that people are using it wrong. Uh, maybe I'm arguing semantics right now. Uh, but I think there's a very real... Um, I think there's a consistency to what's been going on. And I think we, I think the artist knows the difference. I definitely know that some artists, they know when they're not able to produce uh, the, what they're, the quality, the level that they know they can do. So they've sort of developed this style that is... Uh, conducive to the schedule that they have to have. And then when they're able to have a little more leeway and a little more flourish in their work and a little more looseness to it because they're able to spend time on a page or whatever, you know, then then we get some choice quality work. I mean, look at Uncanny Avengers number one. That is not John Cassidy's best work. And anybody who says that it is, 
is uh, just hasn't either read enough work that has John Cassidy's artwork in it, or is I don't know what uh, trying to kiss ass or whatever. But I mean, there's been you know you look at anything that he's done with Planetary, um, even Astonishing X Men. I mean, that's those uh, that artwork in those two issues is is far better than what he did with Uncanny Avengers. And now we're getting several delays, not only with issue two, but now issue three is going to be delayed till January, whatever. So he's obviously dealing with the crunch. He's not a month, month-to-month guy. And they probably didn't have the leeway. I mean, I know Marvel likes to say that they uh, had this in the plan for months or whatever, but it's probably showing that, no, they probably didn't have this planned and, and now the scheduling is suffering for it. So... Rushed. That was my. That was the other word that uh, kind of uh, grates my ear a little bit. And finally, all ages. Now, what I mean by this is all ages pertaining to '80s comics. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is is because uh, you see a lot of people say things like, "Why can't comics be all ages like they were in the '80s?" And what they mean by that is comics that are be that you can give to any age group to read from I don't know I never know what they actually mean by the range like is it 17 and up is it 13 and up is it 8 and up you know it's always kind of weird you know they they make that excuse we we want comics today to be all ages uh, like they were in the 80s and I think that is incorrect I think that's an incorrect statement I think that's an incorrect um idea first of all I think the term should be general audiences not all ages and I th- when I think of that, when I think of when people say that and they say, oh, like they were in the 80s, then I want to go, oh, you mean when Elektra was getting poked in the gut by Bullseye and Daredevil? Or when uh, Supergirl's stomach was blown out by the Anti-Monitor in Crisis? Or Dick Grayson and Corey naked in bed and they weren't sleeping? Or Kitty Pride in the X-Men when she uses the N-word to make a point? Or Wonder Woman decapitating a god. I mean, are those the 80s comics you mean? Because those, you know, I know you can make some argument about crisis or uh, being outside of uh, the the, the phrase all ages. But um, those other ones had the seal of approval on for, for all I know. I know Wonder Woman did. I don't know. Maybe some of the other ones didn't. So to me, it's not so much that comics in the 80s were all ages. Well, no, let me put put it this way. Yes, I, I do think comics in the 80s were all ages not quite in the way that these people are trying to make them out to be. But I also think a lot of comics today are all ages, even the ones where someone's head is being punched off. Because, you know, in the 80s, in any decade, in any generation, there are limits. There are certain limits that society has imposed or, you know, on pop culture and on, um, you know, just the culture in general of what is allowed on TV, what is allowed in comics, what is allowed in music. You know, in the 80s, it reached a certain point, and then it moved even further in the 90s, and then it moved even further in the 2000s to the point where now, you know, the limits have changed. If we brought somebody from the 80s to today and had them read comics and had them listen to music, they would be shocked and appalled. And I don't even mean some uppity, uh, uptight, you know, Whatever, I just mean just a regular common person would probably hear today's music or watch today's TV and say, whoa, how are they getting away with that? Same thing as if you took somebody from the 50s and moved them to the 80s. They probably would read that Daredevil Electra issue and go, oh my God, I would never let my kids read that. 
But guess what? Kids were reading that in the 80s. I was reading it. I was reading Watchmen at, uh, let's see, 86. I was uh, 14, 13 or 14 years old. You know, it's not so much that they want, I I think when they say they want comics to be all ages like the 80s, I think they have a very nostalgic view of what some of those comics were. Yes, the majority of them didn't have these things. But uh, I think you'd be surprised if you go back and look at certain issues and uh, of of some of the more mainstream stuff that was going on back then, and go, wow, oh, okay, yeah, that's okay, that's that is a little different. By today's standards, it might be subtle or not as shocking, but not, by eighties standards, it probably was still shocking. I can remember when my uh, local comic shop guy uh, Lem uh, from Golden Eagle, when Watchmen was coming out, um, whatever issue it is that Rorschach is in the prison and he grabs that tub of fat and throws it onto the guy behind him, I can remember Lem having a really big problem with that and saying, wow, that's, that's very grotesque and, and done in a way that, that is very, uh, for lack of a better word, real, right? It's not cartoon violence, comic book violence. I mean, it is, but it's meant to, it's meant to hurt and it's meant to hit the reader as well that he threw this fat, this vat of uh, you know, boiling fat on somebody. And today we see, I mean, it, it probably wouldn't affect anybody as, as it did back then in the same way. There's a level, there's a boundary to be pushed. You know, think of if anybody's old enough to remember when NYPD Blue first hit the airwaves, you know, primetime TV showing ass crack, saying, I don't know, foul language like bitch and asshole and dickhead. Think of Madonna's Like a Virgin. And what do we have now? We have, when I think about you, I touch myself. And even that's years old. You know, or I kissed a girl and I liked it, or you know, things changed, but the lines changed. But I, I don't think that means comics have to be neutered or shied away from from violence or sex, and uh, because they weren't really doing that back then. I mean, I don't know. I think some people just put too much, don't have much faith in the mind of of kids and and what is right and what is wrong and who the heroes are and who the bad guys are. I mean, look, we just went through Halloween and the kid that puts a Spider-Man's mask on, he knows what that role is. He know, knows what it means. And then, you know, on the flip side, someone who puts a Green Goblin mask on, they know what that means. It means it's a bad guy and he does bad things and, and Spider-Man is always supposed to stop the bad guy. I certainly understand uh, the desire for general audience comic books. That's not what I'm arguing against. I, I'm arguing against the idea that Whenever that's brought up, they always say, oh, like comics used to be. Well, you know, society also used to be something else, too, and it's not. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it is. So that's my last word for uh, the top five. Let me include just another message that MJ uh, wrote to me because I missed it on a Feedback Friday. This was going back to... Um, you know, the culture of comic books and, and us as fans and, and how we get into comics and things like that. And and she wrote that she had an uncle who was a comic savant who passed away and he knew everything about everything. And when she first listened to the Uncanny X cast and she heard uh, Brian talk, Brian Perillo, one of the co-hosts, she said, wow, there's a guy that my uncle would have liked. Then she heard me on an episode of that, and she, again, wrote, well, there's another guy who really knows his stuff. So she thinks the comic community is a great place uh, and thinks that podcasts are, are, are a strong feature of the comics community. 
and there was something very personal for her. You know, it was the same thing with me, with my uncle. My uncle gave me comic books. He grew up in Marvel's late Silver Age, early Bronze Age, reading all that stuff. And he, you know, he knows his favorite character, one of his favorite characters, Thor. He dressed up as Doctor Strange last year. I mean, he he gets it. And passing it on, that's a, that's a big part of the comic community. I don't think it's the responsibility of publishers to try to get kids into comics. I mean, I, I think it's, if you read comics and you're not passing it on to your little ones in your family, whether they're nieces or nephews or whatever, uh, or your own kids, then it's, I think that's more your responsibility than anything else. So, all right, um, let me move on. Here's another comment that was uh, made by Matthew Graham. This is kind of recently, and he mentions MIA Comics, Missing in Action Comics. Titles such as Infinite Vacation Number Five, Non Player Number Two. What are yours and and the listeners' MIA, MIA comics at the moment? Meaning, what are the comics that you've been waiting for maybe for a long time, and you wish they would come out, but they're just not out for one reason or another? Now, and he does reference Non Player, and he does say Matthew says I heard the guy was in a car accident though. Uh, Nate Simpson put out uh, non-player number one. It was from Image Comics back in April, and it took everybody by storm. I got it. I read it. It was It's beautifully drawn. He comes from the video game world. He has an interesting take on what comics should be. And he kind of rode a high all through uh, the summer and through uh, San Diego Comic-Con, and then it was announced that non-player was getting a movie deal. Um, but we still hadn't had issue two. And then in September... He had actually, not a car accident, but a bike accident. He was going downhill. His chain popped. He crashed. He doesn't remember a thing. He just remembers waking up. And his uh, clavicle was broke. And his scapula was, was, basically he says every bone connecting his right arm to his torso, and he is right-handed, was broken. Uh, and that was in September. So now the first issue of Non-Player came out in April. The accident was in September. I mean, that's, that's you know, it's a long time. We didn't get any issue to between that those two incidents, uh, and now he's working on issue two. But obviously, he has some therapy that needs to be done uh, with his right arm. I I think since Image's rebirth or their relaunch earlier in January of 2012, their track record has been much better. Uh, creators are finishing projects, even if they're late, they're not as late anymore. They're getting books out, at least the ones that I read. Uh, I know Chu and Morning Glories are a little late, but they're slowly catching up, and Morning Glories is due for a season one finale, and then they're going to go on break and then jump into season two eventually. Now, for me, some of the books that have been MIA, Missing in Action, um, I thought Lady Mechanica from Aspen was a fun book for the few issues that it came out, and then it kind of disappeared. I'm still waiting for Battling Boy by Paul Pope. And I kind of wanted to see what was going to happen with All-Star Wonder Woman by Adam Hughes. That may not necessarily be his fault. That may be because of the whole DC reboot. Maybe they no longer want to do that, or it's on a back burner. I know when they announced the Earth-1 series and Superman Earth-1 came out, everyone thought we would never see Batman Earth-1, but it actually came out. Um, Hell, you know, (laughs) if you want to get stupid about it, I'm still waiting for the end of Sonic Disruptors and Quest Probe from the 80s. So that's a good question. Matthew has a good question. What are the MIA comics that had that started and ha- are just on a lull or a hiatus? Uh, what do you got? What out there are you guys waiting on? Let me know. And finally, here uh, for today's episode, 
on last week's timeline, or not last week's, uh, it was a timeline Tuesday from October 23rd. I mentioned how 25 years ago at that time, Kamiko, uh, and I was saying it as Kamiko, and I knew it was Kamiko, but then I, I remember reading somewhere someone saying it was not Kamiko, and, and it just went crazy in my brain. But anyway, uh, Kamiko put out Black Book, which was a book that celebrated five years of uh, Kamiko back in uh, in the 80s. Well, I was contacted by them, Bill Kusanada, and he wrote to say thank you for mentioning it and giving a plug for the site. They publish comics on the web at co2comics.com, and they are doing a collection of the magazine called Comics Interview, and I have a few of those issues, and I always try to pick up more when I see them at at comic conventions. It was an 80s uh, comic magazine created by David Anthony Kraft, an interview magazine, and had some articles. Um, David Anthony Kraft was a writer on Defenders. He wrote all but the first issue of the first volume of Savage She-Hulk. He took over Foom, and then in 19, and he did other stuff. And then in 1983, created a Comics Interview, which ran for 150 issues. Well, they ha- are collecting that and putting it out in uh, volumes. They have volume one, and they're working on volume two. Uh, they're working on wrapping up volume two. So he sent a thank you and um, sent out just you know a little update on what they're doing. You can go to their website. I'll put it on in the show notes. Um, they've put out three new creator-owned graphic novels. One is called The Heavy Adventures of Captain Obese by Don Lomax, uh, Heaven and the Dead City by Reigns Ramsky, and then Menage a Bug House by Steve Laffler. CO2comics.com or comicsinterview.com, and I'll post the show, uh, all these in the show notes. I thought that was great that uh, he must have... Uh, maybe somebody hit the link and it... And it you know, showed up in their uh, statistics, or maybe he heard the episode. Somebody said, "Hey, they're talking about you on this uh, podcast." So that was cool that he reached out, and I appreciate that. By all means, check it out, especially that comics interview com- complete collection. Uh, I love comic magazines from the '80s. Uh, comics interview, of course, uh, uh, Amazing Heroes. That was really awesome that he reached out. So thank you, Bill, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be hearing more from from them. So that's it. That's how a, f- a Friday follow-up episode is going to go. I'm just going to, as I said, take uh, a pause, a moment, to go over some things that I have skipped over the many weeks. Uh, and there's still some more stuff I have to get to, I know, and I will uh, next week or the following week. Thank you for listening to this week's Daily Rios episodes. I had a lot of fun this week. And I will be back on Monday, as always, and we'll kick off a new week, and we will see then what happens. Uh, Peter at thedailyreels.com. Go to the website, thedailyreels.com, and chime in on some of the episodes in the comment sections. We're getting some people over there talking. Subscribe through iTunes. If you haven't already, leave uh, an iTunes review. I'd really appreciate that. Spread the word however you want to. I thank you for everything that you have been doing so far, Um, doing the retweets on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, Just awesome. Just great. You know, the show keeps going. Have a great weekend. Be safe. And I will see you on Monday.